Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hey everybody, this is Josh. I want to welcome our new listeners. We've got quite a few new listeners in the past couple months. And if you haven't had a chance to check out the back catalog of episodes, give it a listen. There are over 60 episodes and I'm sure you'll find something you like there. Also, for those who are interested in going deeper, I offer a twice-monthly mythic study group. That's through my Patreon site at patreon.com slash theemeraldpodcast. Patronage levels start as low as $6 per month, and you get access to two study groups per month. They're two-hour Zoom calls, and we talk about podcast episodes and mythic themes that we're exploring on the podcast, and it's a great community, and it's a lot of fun. So if you're interested in that, that's patreon.com slash theemeraldpodcast. And just because I'm getting a lot of inquiries about it already, I am planning on offering a year-long mythic immersion starting in October of 2022. It's called The Mythic Body. It's a deep dive into myth, animacy, and ritual. It includes online learning and also in-person immersion. And if you're interested in finding out more about it, you can email themythicbody at gmail.com. That's themythicbody at gmail.com. I've been waiting a long time to do this episode. In fact, to be honest, this was the very first episode I ever thought of doing. There was a time when The Emerald was going to basically be a travelogue of my experiences at various goddess temples. So why did I wait so long to do this episode? I waited because I realized that before I could really talk about the goddess, before I could talk about the animate force that infuses everything, before I could talk about the holy tremor that powers the engine of space-time, before I could talk about her and really convey what I want to convey, and perhaps just maybe help open a door that might in some small way allow her to move through, to move through with her anklets ringing, to move through her lightning body blazing, hairs on the neck rising, to move through silently, pervasively, or to move through to the boom of drums and the cries of victory, I had to do some groundwork first. Because there's a lot of cultural clutter around the goddess. The goddess is many things these days. She appears everywhere. Her many names are invoked free of context in a hundred thousand ways. She's what? An empowerment tool, an archetype, a self-help course, a feminist icon, Something we invoke when we want help manifesting more creative energy or material abundance in our lives. Something that, in an individualistic culture, always seems to have a whole lot to do with us. 
Mood, tweets Katy Perry, along with a picture of goddess Kali, tongue protruding, flames blazing. Author Elizabeth Gilbert, one medium writer tells us, is a Saraswati-inspired woman because, you know, she's good at landing book deals. Is this her? Is this the goddess? In a postmodern, decontextualized world, she too has been postmodernized and decontextualized, removed from the ecstatic, felt context in which most of her ritual adoration takes place. She's been psychologized, you know, flattened into an archetype. Yet, when was the last time your neck hairs rose for an archetype? When was the last time you wept for an archetype? When was the last time you were brought to your knees for an archetype? She's been politicized, assumed to be some kind of symbol for a particular set of beliefs and worldviews and isms, when, in living reality, she is greater, vaster, more dynamic, more confounding, than any limited ism could ever be. She's been sanitized. The trance convulsions, the cries of anguish and ecstasy, the sacrifice, the blood, very specifically the blood, which is her medium, her matrix, her realm, removed neatly from view. She's been individualized, made into something that exists for us like it's all about what she can do for us. Like, the power of the universe only matters insofar as it can benefit my personal journey of empowerment, whatever that is, in the face of the power of all that is. She's been commodified, like five ways to make the goddess work for you, ancient Vedic goddess mantras to increase your financial well-being, you know, all that. And possibly most consequentially, she's been deanimated placed on the unattainable pedestal of conceptuality. So Saraswati becomes a symbol for something. Abstracted, analyzed, she becomes an idea, a principle, a philosophical musing. Vak Saraswati, the animate force itself. The speech of the cosmos that moves through rivers and through the mouths of lowing cows and the throats of all who speak and sing becomes a concept. Imagine that. But the goddess, the power, Shakti, is not a concept. Munila Swami writes, quote, Her movements are felt, her voice is heard, her presence is experienced. She is a felt reality and not simply an object of conjecture. So I realized that before I spoke of her and did her any justice at all, I had to set a slow and deliberate foundation over many episodes, a foundation of animacy. Animacy as the substrate of existence, as the way things are, the normative way of perceiving a living, breathing, all-permeating, energized cosmos of being. The goddess traditions are animist, and the goddess is the animating force itself, the living breath that powers nature, drains and fills watersheds, swells clouds, satiates bellies, raises goosebumps, and expresses back to source as song, as dance, as poetic meter. The goddess lives in vast interconnected geographies of stones and trees, in thundering rivers in the Ganga and the Yamuna and the Kaveri. She rises as bubbling springs at Kamakya and as naturally occurring flames at Dwalamukhi. 
And to speak of her, I had to speak first of the relationship of animate forces to places. For the goddess is inseparable from the place. She is Minakshi, Chintpurni, Kamakshi, Kamakya. These are all goddesses and they are places. Every place that we turn our loving attention, in fact, one could say, there is a goddess. There is the goddess. Every place we turn our loving attention. To speak of her, I had to speak first of the relationship of animacy and trance. The animate power, the living fact of a universe and ecology of animate being, is realized in trance, in states of utter absorption. It is realized, navigated, in what Tyson Yonka Porta calls the ancestral mind. Exhausted after the dance, the run, the eight-hour ritual, the four-hour kirtan, the long search for food in the desert, the thoughts melt away, and we see her suddenly everywhere. We know her through trance. Light trance like a sweet hum of dragonflies on a summer day, or full trance, trance possession it's sometimes called. Full trance all across the Indian subcontinent. She bends and squeezes her way into her devotees, forcing the shrieks and yelps of high trance out of quivering mouths. Ridden by the goddess, taken by the lion. She is transpossession itself. When one is in trance, they say, it is her. To speak of her, I had to speak of consciousness, and how consciousness is experienced in mystic states. For the patterns, tunnels, vortexes, axes, luminosities, nectars, vibrational currents, and humming architectures that we experience in heightened consciousness are her playing field. This is her at play. For as some say, she is the eternal, vibrant pulse of consciousness itself. To speak of her, I had to speak of hums and invocations. And I had to hum and invoke. I had to hum to speak of her. I had to hum for she is sonic. She is sonic. I had to speak of resonance for she is resonance. The goddess is Dvani, is resonance, says the Netra Tantra. When we lock in, entrain, resonate with ecology, with community, with cosmos, our hearts in training to the larger world, this is her. When something resonates, it's her resonating. The reflective power itself vibrating. So, to speak of her, I had to first speak of hums and resonances and of nectars, and I had to speak of light and luminous focal points. I had to speak of the moon, yes, I had to speak of lunar cycles, and vegetation, for she is vegetative power, the force that Dylan Thomas said lights the green fuse. She is Neem and Fig and Banyan and Tulsi and Kadamba. And to properly honor her vegetative power, I had to speak of planting and harvest. I had to speak of the festivals that are infused with her plants and her songs, for she is known through the festivals that celebrate her. She moves more freely through the bodies of her devotees at festivals. She is aroused at festivals, ready to carry us off into union at festivals. To speak of her, beloved, I had to speak of this world of birth and death, of want and lack. To speak of her, beloved, I had to speak of sacrifice, 
for it is on her altar that all things that breathe and blink are born and die. I had to speak of blood, beloved, of life, death, incarnation, the matrix of her dominion. I had to speak, beloved, I had to speak of longing. I had to speak of longing. What if that great want we feel, what if that great want were itself alive, a being? What if, when we feel the longing to be plunged into the seamless unity of nature, to be immersed in a great totality, when we long to feel ourselves inseparably fused to the cosmos, that longing, that great longing, that greatest of longings, that longing and the object of longing itself are both her. So, everything that I've spoken of on this podcast in relation to trance, to animism, to mythosomatics, to resonance, to place and context and vegetation and festivals lives in the beating heart of her traditions, is alive and well in the goddess traditions of India. I had to set the foundation so that when at last I devoted an episode entirely to her, you would know that I'm not speaking about an abstract principle. I'm not speaking of an archetype. I'm speaking of the animate power itself. The tremor, the expansion, the bend and the sway, the power. So now at last we can speak of her. Now at last we can speak of you, Ma. Now at last we can speak of you. Now at last you arrive for us. And I'm speaking of you, Mother Power. I'm speaking of you. Anklets ringing through the void of space-time. Anklets ringing through the void of space-time. I'm speaking of you. I'm speaking about the goddess in full recognition that I'm not a lineage holder in her traditions, or even really a scholar of any note. I'm speaking as an outsider who has been fortunate enough to be invited into her spaces through the graciousness of her gatekeepers. And there, in those spaces... I felt something. And in feeling something, I was inspired, as is the way with those in whom she stirs the great longing. I was inspired to sing back. So this is me singing back. This is me singing back to you, Ma. Singing back along with my friend Nivedita, who graciously has agreed to do some singing for this episode. Singing back. And to be clear, I'm not speaking from any place of authority. I'm speaking so that from the years that I've spent journeying to her sacred places and learning from her devotees and hearing her in the bhajan sung to her and the drum sounded to her and glimpsing her in stones and trees and rivers, perhaps speaking of her today, we can evoke the slightest shimmer or tremor that has within it a hint of the feeling of her. Why? Because we need her. We need the animate force to wake us up, to remind us that we are alive, to remind us that we breathe this living breath and we sing with broken voice and we long with hearts that want nothing ultimately more than to be drawn into you. 
all the relentless categorizations and decontextualizations and monetizations and fractures and fissures and anxieties and tensions and pointless conversations, all the frustrations, rumors of war among nations, traumas, humiliations, degradations, machinations we go through, telling ourselves, this is what I want, know this, know this, and if only this, then chasing that eternal idealization. And meanwhile, the gulf between us and other, between dweller and neighbor, between brain and body, mind and heart, deepens, widens, aggravations, justifications, and all the while what we really long for. What we really long for is to be melted in her unifying gaze. To be melted in her unifying gaze. To remember the living breath at the heart of all things and to construct our lives around it. And to honor it. And to sing to it. To sing our way home. Sing our way home. Why must we find this connection to the animate? Because in an age of attention wars and technology-induced slumber, saturated with the relentless hypnotic drone of devices, she shakes us awake, reminds us where we are, what's important, what's sacred, where to turn our attention, reminds us what a place really is. A place, remember, a place, a non-digital space, a space draped in hibiscus, steeped in butter and oil, illuminated with flame, adorned with our loving attention. A place with eyes. This world is a place with eyes. Where do we take our eyes in this place? Can we pry ourselves away from the screen and take our gaze to meet hers? To meet the animate? To meet the eyes of the world? In an age of polarized, punitive, linear discourse, she says, Remember poetry. Remember poetry. This alone is a strong rudder to help us navigate the torrential waves. Remember poetry. And the moment we see the poetry slipping from discourse, reevaluate whether that is discourse that's worth having. In an age in which we seem to have decided that the end of the story has already been written, that late-stage capitalism is the way of all ways, that the world would rather eat itself than change, she asks us to remember Remember that the hollow, unstruck part of the world still dreams. Remember that where time leads us is a mystery. Remember that the end of the story has not in any way been written, that the next breath is the great unknown. Remember the imagination, the dream, the trance, the hum, the totem, the stone, the fire, the power, the flaming net, as the Kubjika Mata Tantra says, of her energies the triple halo of her energies, the incandescence of her energies, the victorious roar of her energies. She asks us to remember infinite nature and speak with her, sing to her, feel her breath upon our ears. Because ultimately, everything, absolutely everything we do in this life, this body, this breath, this song, all of it is an evocation of her. All this is her listening to her. This is her gazing back at her. This is her humming to her. This is her entranced forever by her. This is for you, O resonance, O goddess. For you, the divine mother of the universe. The goddess is the animate force. Today on the Emerald. Jagadambe Devi Bhavani Jagadambe Devi Bhavani Jagan Maha
Just like that old country song says, I still remember the broken road that led me right to you. It was literally a broken road, full of potholes and gravel. I can see it. In my memory, it extends out into the horizon, winding through the green Karnataka rice fields, the late afternoon monsoon light like sacrificial butter. A herd of goats scatters in front of my motorcycle, scrambles off the road, little hooves trampling through the foliage and the air is suddenly filled with the scent of wild mint. Further, this broken road opens up into wide sugarcane fields. It's harvest time, the sugarcane is burning, the scent is smoky and sweet. Where was I going? I had no idea. I was getting deliberately lost. I was in India for several months of intensive yoga and Sanskrit study. The study was over by early in the day, so my daily ritual became to take my rented motorcycle and go as far into the backcountry, into the villages as possible, and find whatever I could find. I followed my intuition. It had done me well so far. It had led me into verdant fields dotted with white egrets and hidden shrines. It had led me to an impromptu and comical lunch with a goat herder, neither of us speaking a word of the other's language. It led me to a lost stone Rama temple, overgrown with jungle creepers. On those long rides, I felt the freedom of wind on my skin, the freedom of no clear destination. But I also knew that under the skin was an anxiousness. I was searching for something, a reunion of some kind, perhaps, with a force that I did not yet know. So I took any road that led into the unknown. Looking back now, I can say I was pretty restless then, but I can feel nothing but gratitude for that spark of restlessness now. Because whatever its source, and whatever it was seeking, it led me right to you. 
I rode through many miles of farmland until finally I came to a small village. I parked my bike in a little dirt roundabout and walked towards the center. I was greeted there by a crowd of rowdy school kids who wanted to practice their English. They asked me my name, my country, I answered. We chatted until a different question came. It came from a girl probably nine years old or so. As the others ran out of English phrases to bounce around, she tugged my sleeve and looked up at me and asked, Do you want to meet the goddess? I've learned a few things about India in the many years I've been traveling there. There are sometimes clues and signs. When a question like that hangs in the air, it's good to pay attention. Do I want to meet the goddess? Of course I want to meet the goddess. Yes, I replied. She and a friend led me down an alleyway of small houses. I remember a goat munching on a shrub. I remember hay stacked high on mud walls. Then there's a house on the left with a green door. It looks no different than the other houses except that perhaps it has a larger entranceway. She points me to the door, gestures for me to go in. I slip off my shoes and leave them to the side. I walk through the threshold. It's dark in there. My eyes adjust slowly, and the first thing I see are other eyes. Many pairs of eyes. There's about 20 people in the room, seated on the floor, their focus directed to a curtained-off area where a man is chanting to what looks like a mound of earth, a mound of earth draped in flowers, a simple mound of earth saturated in turmeric and vermilion, a mound of earth with eyes. I want to tell you what happened that day. I want to tell you exactly what happened, with no exaggerations. There's no need to make it into anything more than it was, for ultimately it was something very simple. Something in certain parts of the world very common. The fact that it was uncommon for me doesn't make it exotic or something that needs to be overblown into something else. What happened was simple. What happened was this. There was a moment. A shriek came from somewhere in the room. A hand slapped the earth hard. I was suddenly aware that around me, bodies were convulsing and shaking as the cries continued. There were shrieks, chirps. There was glossalia speaking in tongues. I can't describe it to you more fully because my head had somehow been forcibly bowed. My chin had dropped and it felt like a weight was pushing down on the top of my head. And I couldn't move my head. I couldn't even raise my eyes to look at the curtained off area and the mound with eyes. Because at that moment, at that moment... That would have been like trying to stare directly into the sun. Let me ask you something. Have you ever felt something so vast and so holy that you dare not even lift your gaze to look at it? There was no rational reason why I shouldn't be able to move my head. There was no rational reason why tears should be streaming down my face. There was no rational reason why a mound of earth should be generating such a deep somatic response. Yet, that's what happened. 
This earth, remember, is alive. This earth is a place with eyes. In the years that I'd studied spiritual traditions, this was something different than I'd encountered before. I'd been raised in animist traditions, but always through what you could call a modern conceptual veneer. I'd certainly felt things, presences at springs, voices in the breeze, but this was so directly tangible, undeniable, a fierce, vibrant, living animacy, an animacy realized through trance, through direct felt experience, through direct living transmission, and it changed my life. After that day, I began to seek out the goddess more intentionally, and I've done so ever since. I embarked on an ongoing journey that led me to dozens of her well-known sacred sites and also led me to seek her out in groves and forests and villages, out-of-the-way places. And the more I began to look, the more I started to see that she was everywhere. She is everywhere. She is the substratum of the world, says the Chandipataha, the abiding force of the universe. And so the goddess forms the living substrate of the traditions of the Indian subcontinent. She lives as a living, breathing network of song and story and ritual, embedded in land and place, reinvigorated with the mythology of that land and place. She lives in snake holes and mounds and rivers and creeks, on ridges, on mountaintops at places where seas meet. She expresses the way that the animate force has been seen to express in traditional cultures all across the world as the very forces of nature, the river, the owl, the alligator, her body inseparable from the natural world, her as shapeshifter, mistress of animal powers. The Kaula Nana Nirnaya describes shape-shifting yoginis wandering the earth in the form of doves, vultures, swans, owls, cranes, peacocks, jackals, goats, cats, tigers, elephants, snakes. The Skanda Purana gives a list of 64 yoginis, many with half-bird or animal bodies. The yoginis live in the sky, on earth, in water, and in space. Animate forces a living, animate geography of nature goddesses, linked together with stories and songs, joined through a mythic anatomy based around the fallen body of the mother goddess herself. For her body was burned in a great fire. Have you heard? The body of the mother goddess was burned in a great fire, and her divine lover, arriving too late, lifted a single one of her charred bones to his lips, as Stanisław Timosina poetically imagines, and blue. And the sound that echoed throughout all creation and became all creation was Uma. 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 Her. As Shiva began his wild dance of mourning, her body fell to the earth. Her charred hair landed at Chamundi Devi, where I saw her once, adorned in silver and pink hibiscus. Her right hand landed at Bhattarji, so bright, so, so bright, where the Hidras shout blessings at pilgrims from beneath an old Varakadi tree. Her heart landed at Ambaji, her unstruck heart, where her devotees pound on drums and shout victory to the mother, and where some say there is a yantra etched in gold that no one, no one has ever seen. Her windpipe landed at Nalateshwari, 
her earrings at Vishalakshi, her breasts at Taratarini, her tongue at Jualamukhi, where she speaks in the blazing language of fire. Her womb landed at Kamakya, where her waters run red, her ears at Brajeshwari, where she rested and cleaned her wounds after the great battle with Mahishasura. <laughs> Within this sacred geography, anatomy, live countless thousands of local animate goddesses, countless thousands of heaps of earth with eyes, countless snake holes, countless goddess trees, countless tulsi shrines, countless ornamented stones, each a repository of story and song, each a portal into a place of rapture, a geography, a living geography of rapture. In many places, like rural Himachal Pradesh, you can walk from goddess shrine to goddess shrine for miles upon miles, always at least one goddess shrine within sight. And all throughout this geography, the medium through which she is realized, felt, beheld, conjoined with, is trance. As Frederick Smith says in The Self-Possessed, transpossession is far, far more widespread than is often acknowledged. A recent study in Andhra Pradesh showed that one-third of the rural population experienced states of transpossession and goddess rituals. Gavin Flood in The Tantric Body says that all Indian meditative and absorptive traditions are refinements, in one way or another, of transpossession. And he's got refinements in quotes, so we don't think that one is higher than the other. Sri Padma, in her book Vicissitudes of the Goddess, speaks of the ubiquitous presence of trance in village ritual as it forms the living medium through which the goddess is communed with all across the subcontinent. At this point, I've seen this firsthand in dozens upon dozens of places. There are signs to follow, a language to look for, places to know where and when to go. Aroused, the goddess wakes up within her devotees' very bodies, the animate force that lives in springs and owls and tulsi trees also lives in each one of us. She is present in the heart, the texts say, residing in the head. She lives in the spine as kundalini. She dwells in the energy centers of the body. I bow to the goddess abiding in the heart, the belly, the tips of the fingers, the toes, and the head. This sacred anatomy is hers. The sense organs, say the Nichisodashi Karnava, are little drops of the great ocean of her bliss. And when she wakes up, things happen. As the Devatma Shakti says, quote, when the goddess is aroused, she is felt in many ways. These include bodily shaking, involuntary deep breathing, trembling, hair standing on end, laughing, weeping, stammering, involuntary postures, fixation of sight and waves of bliss. The person may hear various sorts of music, bells, drums, the buzzing of bees, the strumming of stringed instruments. There may be vibrations within the spinal cord, a lack of feeling in the body or intense feeling in the body, leading to apparent intoxication or convulsions. The body may fall to the floor and rotate like a grinding wheel. The person may jump from place to place, assuming the form of animals, making the sounds of jackals, dogs, tigers, birds. 
the world may resonate with mantras and the person may feel currents of breath energy traveling through his or her body. Currents of breath energy, so the goddess is not an abstract philosophy. She is named in the Kumarika Kandaha with names like lightning mouth, upraised hair, shaker, force of the wind. She shakes, attracts, paralyzes, bends, convulses, seizes, absorbs, transports, illuminates, heats, liberates. She is dynamism. She's realized through ecstatic union, felt communion, through dance, through song, through drumming. The goddess, it is said, quote, likes the sound of drumming. She is present in sound and is called the word. She is speech. She is found in the form of praise. The praise that rings out to her in the form of countless mantras and bhajans and slokas is, in fact, her. She is the very sonic waves that move through those inspired to raise their voices to her. As floodwater surges through a canyon, as sound swells through a violin, this whole place is her singing in praise of her, the mongrel howl of dogs fighting over scraps at the cremation ground, the orchestras of Lincoln Center, her singing in praise of her. The great goddess, says Kshemaraja's commentary on the Netra Tantra, is of the nature of sound and resonance, the supreme energy of activity. She is in the form of all that speaks and utters. She is the source of all incantation, all poetic refrain, all song. She is present everywhere, like fire is present in wood. Here, she lives humming like the latent fire in the oak, the latent fire in the elm, the latent fire in the tamarind, like the latent fire in you, beloved, like the latent fire in you, she is humming as the latent fire in you. From Jeffrey Lidke, quote, This is the goddess who causes trembling through rhythm. She is the emittive power who gives rise to creation, awakens the kundalini shakti, produces states of possession and invigorates the sociocultural mandala through ritual, music, and dance. It is no accident that shamans seek to be possessed by Triparasundri, the goddess, in drumming-induced states of altered consciousness. It is no accident that the Nichisodashi Karnava is a manual for installing her sacred sounds upon the body. End quote. For she is known through sound. That goddess of speech, says the Triparasya, is as intoxicating as the sound of millions of drums. She vibrates like millions of swarms of bees. She is the controller of the vital breath and the queen of my life. The queen of my life. Trivuana poshini shankarato shini kilbisha moshini hosharate. Says the Chandipataha, she roars and laughs and rends the sky with her terrifying roar. The oceans tremble at the roar that cannot be contained. The roar is felt in the bodies of those taken by her. Her sounds reverberate through the bodies of those taken by her. For she is, as the 13th century hymn to Malini, the Malini Stava, says, she is the power of sound, the assembly of all the sounds. Right, imagine, 
the assembly of all the sound, her body made of sonic resonance. And she is specifically resonant, as we talked about in the episode last time, because she exists beyond our control, beyond our fathoming. We resonate with her because our hearts leap towards infinity, towards the great power that reverberates everywhere always all at once. When I started looking for her, I found a body made of countless layers and permutations. Her body made of stories. Her body made of the song sung to her. Her body woven of all the states of consciousness realized by her devotees in rapture. Her body made of the longing of all beings. Imagine a body made of the resonant longing of all beings, the want of the strutting bird of paradise, the want of the newborn reaching for its mother, fingers clutching for a strand of hair, the want of the sculptor, the want of the newlywed bride, the want of the poet, the want of the warrior, the want of the blind singer, the want of the world. Her body is all the want in the world. This too is her body. Her body, transcendent and imminent, nowhere and everywhere, tied to places and free from all associations at once. Her body, the power. What do we name it, this power that moves through everything, that is everything, that is why there is something instead of nothing, and is that something itself, that is the dimensionless drop that contained all potentiality, and in a moment of profound expansion swelled into a universe that is, at latest count, two trillion galaxies wide. What do we name this great power? The power that birthed all this. There are many who have called it her. We speak of Mother Nature, or we speak of the matter that comprises the universe. Matter, of course, being another word for mother. Luminous matter, dark matter. We invoke the mother, the great birthing power of creation, every day without even realizing it, whenever we say something matters. All this matters. All this is of the mother, born of the mother power. The supreme mother goddess is the womb of the world, says the Kumarika Kandaha. All that moves and does not move arises there within her. She is the source of all the infinite powers. Everything emerges from her womb. O oh, lady of the womb, the Malini Stava calls to her. You, the ocean of the infinite womb, you are the mother of all living beings. She is the nature of the cause of the entire universe, Kshemaraja says, the shining vigor in all vigorous things. 
So in the texts that sing her praises, she is directly called nature, and nature of many facets, the one who commands all the energies, nature commanding all the energies, her. Without her, the Sundari Lahari says, the universe doesn't even stir. So the first impulse, the very first stirring, that coaxed all of this out of latency, that faintest, that grandest of stirrings, is her. You are the one who moves in the void, the Malini Stava says. Imagine, the vast womb of space-time, imagine, something stirred, something moved, and became all this, all this, the quote, mother of the assembly of all things adorned in every color, the bird of paradise, the cirrus cloud, the artist brush, the meditator and the object of meditation and the act of meditating. She of infinite forms. So she is everywhere, in everything. The omnipresent energy of the universe that, quote, goes on forever. The one who is endless and everywhere, both transcendent and imminent. Transcendent and imminent, what does that mean? It means that she is tangible reality present in the whoosh of the air that we breathe, the gurgle of water that flows, and the hum of the thoughts that we think. And yet, she is completely beyond our fathoming, beyond time and space. Three-dimensional beings cast our slender lines into the vast ocean of space-time, trying to latch onto something that sticks. In the latest thinking, a full 85% of the universe is dark matter, which, of course, we have only theorized and have never actually touched or smelt or rubbed our faces against, which is another way of saying that there's a whole lot of mystery out there that we still cannot begin to comprehend. In fact, a new major study just came out questioning whether dark matter even exists at all. Where does that leave us? It leaves us, as her great devotee Ram Prasad said, like ants trying to grasp the moon. To this day, says the Nichisodashi Karnava, even the gods know not a thing about her. What is she? From where did she arise? Where does she reside? By what was she created, the gods ask. We measure what we can measure within the limitations of five senses and the help of rudimentary tools. Yet the source, the why, the hum of it, the smallness of that final particle that we'll never find, the borders of the universe that we'll never chart, the moment of creation that we'll never see despite how many nanoseconds we shave off, remains gloriously, thankfully, graciously a mystery. Thank you, great goddess, for remaining a mystery. 
thank you for staying hidden from us, for that allows us to long for you. What we fathom of her, everything we can think or know or suppose or dream about the universe, still doesn't hint at who she ultimately is. It still doesn't poke into her dimensionless core. Being without the markings of space and time, says the Nichisadashi Karnava, she is that cosmic pulsation which is the totality. She is nameless, says the Kumarika Kandaha, the vibratory power of consciousness itself in the sphere of the nameless. All names point at her but do not even begin to describe her entirely. As Trevor Hall sings, all of creation is only her face which is why she is also called she who wears time as an ornament, and why some sing to her as she who swallows time. She is time and space and beyond time and space at once, imminently graspable as close as a lover's touch, and unfathomable as the question, how big is the universe, or why? Why? You are the pillar of the universe, says the Malini Stava, the light of the radiant energy of the fire of time. And also, it calls her extremely fine, as fine as the half-eye twinkle of a fraction of a moment. The half-eye twinkle of a fraction of a moment. Sometimes when my one-year-old looks back at me from his high chair, I catch a glimpse of a bright little pinpoint in his eye. You know that bright pinpoint? Imagine all the gleaming pinpoints in all the eyes of all the creatures in all the world. Chameleon eyes, crab eyes, peacock eyes, manta ray eyes, falcon eyes, a shining universal network of eyes. This too is her body, shimmering and All that shimmers is her shimmering. She is radiant, say the texts, flame-like. She shines permanently, shining through all things. Quote, By my awakening alone do living beings awaken, do things pulse, speak, expand, and contract. So, yes, all of it, we can say, is her the animate force, the power, Shakti, the power. She is the ruler of all, they say. A revelation that caused the Bengali saint Ramakrishna, who was known for going into paroxysms of ecstasy merely at the mention of her name, caused him to proclaim, all of this is within the jurisdiction of Shakti. When we think, I'm sitting, I'm meditating, all of that is Shakti. All of that is her. Her jurisdiction is complete. 
The vibratory power of nature encompasses each one of us. The great goddess is all-pervasive, says the Kumarik Kandaha. She is present in each and every thing. She is the fierce wave present in the body and in all bodies, energized by her own nature. Feel into it. The fierce wave in all bodies. And this is right at the heart of starting to understand her, to feel her. She moves in waves, in pulses, pulses that we feel. The point is to feel her. The point is not for her to live as a detached image far away on an altar or as some kind of principle. The point is to feel her. All of her traditions are aiming us towards an experiential moment. All the singing about nectars and buzzing bees and crystalline light, all the invocation of fierce waves and void spaces and overflowing points and thunderous roars and reflective moons, all are for us to experience her directly. To go into the state of conjunctive consciousness as the Netra Tantra is to be plunged into her who knows and does everything. So again, feel into this a bit and feel how this is so semantically and somatically different than, you know, I sat down on my nice little meditation cushion and practiced mindfulness for a few minutes and all of it was very internal and nice and mostly was just me kind of sitting with me. That's a very different feeling than to go into the conjunctive space is to be plunged into her, to be plunged into rapturous union with a greater animacy. We have sanitized the meditative moment. We have diminished the vastness of the meditative moment, which also neatly and clearly allows us to make the meditative moment all about us, something that we can neatly and tidily control. I talk about flow states a lot on this podcast. These days, flow states are all the rage, as I'm sure you know. You know, find flow while working at home, flow states and big tech's quest to dominate the world, etc., etc. And so, what are flow states? Ultimately, in this understanding, the flow state is to be plunged into her, to be carried into her, to be taken away into the great flowing forever, which is her. And so a culture of what you could call holy recognition exists around these states in their traditional context. They're not tools. They are communion with something deeper and vaster than we can even comprehend. It doesn't matter if we can define them through brain chemistry. That is secondary. What's far more important to understand is that the entry across her threshold, through her door, into her shimmering vastness, has consequences and implications far, far beyond how we harness our potentiality, far, far beyond what we call self-help, far beyond our bank accounts, and even far beyond our individual psychological well-being. Implications like, how do I interact with a world that ultimately is going to sacrifice everything I love on the altar of time? Right? Or, once I behold the infinite heart of everything... What do I do? Do I launch a high-performance DMT toad medicine startup? And what is that? Why has that become the be-all, end-all of everything that we can imagine out of the absorptive state? 
the tiniest glimpse of eternity by culturally programmed minds that can only grok things in terms of their potential for monetization. Like that meme going around says about Westerners having their first spiritual experience. And they're like, I think I see a career here, right? <laughs> but the real invitation of her, the animate force, the mother goddess known as the flow state, known as the shaker, known as the swallower of time, known as she of the bristling upraised hair. The real invitation is something far, far deeper. For ultimately, the flow is between us transitory beings and the infinite. The resonance we feel in flow is ultimately between us and that which is vaster and greater than us. Conjunctive union with nature, the great birther and devourer, that we might glimpse her and feel her and commit to a deep reciprocal relationship with her, with nature itself. That her garland of energies, space, time, light, animacy, life, might surge through us and wake us up to her presence, to the joy and the beauty that is right here, right now. This garland of energies is tangible and real, carefully accessed by those who have inherited an uninterrupted knowledge stream dating back perhaps to Paleolithic times of how to access her. Her practices are intricate and precise, simple sometimes, dazzling, from tantric meditations in which the sounds sacred to her are vibrationally installed within the body of the practitioner, to traditions in which devotees suffer pain for her piercing their tongues or cheeks or backs with barbs as they contact her in the deep trance state. And it's worth noting in this day and age that her traditions are not just wild, freeform abandon. There are deep protocols for accessing her, just as there are deep protocols of animacy in every animist tradition I've ever encountered. There is discipline, there is heat, there is friction. There are things that we must rub up against, obstacles that must be slowly melted away, and that takes repetition, willingness to show up, even when we don't want to show up. The message of the wild goddess is not simply go be wild or do whatever you feel. It's actually often the opposite. Cultivate deeply over time through the heartbeat of repetition, a good container, a space for her to dance. Traditionally, her practices are transmitted within a matrix, which is another word for her, a matrix of context, by those who have been fully plunged into her mysteries, not simply read about her or did their doctorate on her. And these practices are not anything resembling what we call self-help. Despite what you read on Medium, they generally have nothing to do with harnessing the power of Saraswati to help you write that next novel. They don't come as personal betterment courses and snackable morsels packaged for our amusement. They're not trophies or adornments or status symbols. They're not designed to make us feel better about ourselves. If anything, they're designed to get us out of the way completely. 
define the conditions necessary through repetitive recitation almost to the point of exhaustion to access at last that which matters, that which matters, mother, matter. So, yeah, us as we know us, our wants and needs aren't exactly the important part. And this is perhaps the hardest for Western minds to grasp. She's not here to do something for us, to take time off from creating and crushing universes to intervene and help us with a job interview or manifesting a spa vacation. Can we imagine, can we strip away the cultural conditioning for just one moment and imagine giving our offering, our time, our attention, our care to something that has nothing to do with our own career advancement or the reinforcement of our own identity? If anything, our task those of us who pay lip service to wanting to be more aligned to natural currents and rhythms, is to evaluate and measure if we are living a life that is aligned to her, to her cycles, that allows us access to the deep support of her currents and her energies, that feels connected to the breath of the earth and sky and atmosphere, within which the sun of her right eye and the moon of her left comes shining through. What is self-help, the sages might ask, when the only true help is to be found at her feet, singing her name? What does this mean? It means that she is the unstoppable current of space, time, energy, ancestry, and nature. And we can either seek to construct our lives in tune with her harmonic forces, understanding when to surrender, when to let go, when to plant and when to harvest, when to commit and when to move on, or we can swim against the tide of this life over and over again. Ruled by the most fleeting of currents are thoughts, agitations, and embedded patterning. It means that, like it or not, no matter what shiny objects we surround ourselves with and what stories we tell about ourselves and who we hang out with and what our career trajectories are, this body, woven of the matter of the mother, is born, it ages, and it dies. And in that process, we are not the decider. My youngest son is turning one. My wife grew him in her belly, out of her own body. But where did he come from, really? Where did he come from, this little one who now wraps his fingers gently around mine? What is the force that grew him from one cell to a trillion, that grew him into a being that now moves with fingers? The delicate, electrified latticework of fingers how on earth does that intricate architecture unfold? That sublime artistry is not ours. It's the dominion of the finer forces of the universe, the providence of nature, of time and space and light, all of which are names for her. Her, her, the light beyond lights, as she is called, or the roar of time. For as much as she is the birth of the universe, she is also its end the doomsday fire, in whose presence the billion-year journey of our ancestors, the trials and tribulations and joys and pains of the tens of thousands of mothers and grandmothers, is nothing. 
not even a grain of her foot dust. Where is self-help within that? Sure, I can sign a book deal and go learn to make fresh ravioli and claim it's a spiritual journey. She doesn't care. She doesn't care about the feelings of confidence I get when I slay it in a business meeting. She doesn't care about Instagram pictures of me in crow pose or about the progress I'm making in headstand. And this is the most difficult of all. She probably doesn't pick sides and causes. She doesn't necessarily favor Democrats over Republicans or socialists over capitalists, for her body is made of all contradictions at once. She upends all our notions of what power actually is. She is time. Time itself. Who does time favor? All are born and all die within her providence, and all have a seat at her table should they choose to undertake the necessary protocols to get there. But to get there often means crushing our dearly held isms. And these days, how many are willing to do that? How many are willing to have their isms crushed? But all of us, all of us can look forward to having our isms crushed equally beneath her feet. Or instead, we can die desperately holding on to those isms, begging to be allowed to keep just one. Can I just keep one construct? until all are stripped away in a great act of universal devouring. All of us, without exception, are her sacrifice victims. So she is called the one who loves sacrifice, and she who laughs at those caught in the wheel of transmigratory existence. (laughs) She takes the heads of all, white supremacists and trans activists and corporate CEOs alike, and she strings them as a garland around her neck. And we're left to shake our fists at her in that most futile of gestures, that of a four-year-old gazing up at their mother and proclaiming, But that's not fair. And this gets at what very few of the goddess-as-empowerment-tool crowd or the self-help yoginis want to ultimately admit. The Divine Mother is terrifying. The Divine Mother is absolutely, unequivocally terrifying. She is a crone, described with withered skin, a walking skeleton. Stare into the eyes of the emaciated Chamundi statue at Kamakya Devi Temple and tell me what you see. She is horrible, say the texts, horrible with bulging red eyes. She drinks blood and wears corpses as earrings and lives in a hut made of human skin perched on a pile of bones on the periphery of civilization. She lives in the cremation ground with her host of accompanying energies, blood drinkers and skull bearers. She asks us to stare into the immutable fact of death, to stare into everything we don't want to look at, to stare into the coldness of eternity, 
and to not flinch. And I encounter Westerners who ask this a lot. Why is Kali so terrifying? Why is there so much gruesome imagery? Why all the blood? Why are there dead people? Welcome to the world. Nature is built on death. Death is all around us all the time. Everything that grows in the forest grows on the dead bodies of what came before. Nature is terrifying. Time is terrifying. Tell me you're not terrified of time, who will snuff you and your whole tribe out in an instant. Tell me you're not terrified of nature. If you're not terrified of nature with, you know, that reverential terror of holy awe, then you probably haven't actually lived in nature, felt the consequences when a Himalayan storm changes direction, or when a crop fails, or when pox sweeps through the valley. Nature is terrifying. She is horrific, says the Kumarika Kandaha. She burns without smoke, like the flame on the wick of a lamp, shining like countless millions of roaring, howling gods. Her roaring laugh sends the gods trembling, they say. The Malini Stava calls to her, Oh, terrible one. Oh, mistress, savior of the triple world. Oh, you of the formidable howl, who laughs at the comedy of the wheel of existence. The most fierce of the fierce, your form is ferocious. Your glance is terrifying. Many describe the sheer intensity associated with being her devotee. Trans practitioners in the Kali traditions of Kerala describe the heat, pain, shivers, tremors, the surges of almost unmanageable emotion when being taken by her into trance. And with such pain involved, wouldn't we avoid her at all costs? Yet, after establishing her as horrible, ferocious, the Malini Stava then implores, gaze upon me. Gaze upon me here, you of the lion's gaze. The place of mother as devourer, of nature as ruler-controller of all, is terrifying, but it's a place we long to be taken, for it is the place where we can, at last, get out of our own way, get out of our heads, at last. The great place the hymn speaks of is the place of the truth of our own powerlessness before time. We are totally and utterly powerless before time. Have you noticed all those tributes on social media? Those tributes to rock stars that meant something to us that are now dying? To actors and actresses that are dying? To business leaders and activists? Those posts seem to be increasing, don't they? Why? Because everyone's dying. Welcome to matter. Welcome to the mother. Welcome to the doomsday fire. She rules everything unequivocally. And all we can do, really, is learn what graceful, repetitive surrender means. The ongoing, regular practice of surrender. The discipline of surrender, one of my course participants recently called it. And when at last we surrender, when at last we surrender, when at last we let go, then we find, of course, that she is what? The gentlest, most loving mother of all. She is the one who infuses the universe with rose-colored hues. She breastfeeds the universe, the texts say. She is the protectress, the savioress, the one who shuttles us across the torrent. In her form as Kanakalakshmi, 
Devotees pour streams of fragrant milk over a statue of her made of cool silver. I saw the rainwater pouring into her temple at Kamakshiavan. A momentary glimpse of a crescent moon shining in the dark. A sugarcane stalk. All things sweet and fruitful blossoming in fragrant darkness. I saw her feet soaked in vermilion at Kamakya, adorned in white jasmine. She is beauty itself. Beauty, the first outflow of this variegated world. Beauty that comes with differentiation. She is proportion, symmetry, art, love. From the Naneshwari, quote, All art springs from her. All learning comes from her. She is the chamber in which all sound is produced, the treasure house of all marvels. In fact, all things arise from the play of her power. The manifestation and dissolution of the universe are her morning and evening. Enough has been said. She is the great enchantress. The great enchantress, so she is the muse, the poetic, artistic, creative force itself. Infinitely creative in a world of infinite creativity. The mother, the power, scintillant green of the mallard feather the mother the power did you hear her did you hear her in the sound of morning thunder when was it beloved that we woke to the sound of morning thunder all green things spiraling towards the power. All green things spiraling towards the power. This whole universe, says Timalcina, including yourself, is her body of love projected as universal flux. Like an artist or a musician, the goddess becomes inspired. Her spanda shakti, that's her vibrational power, stirs and she desires to create. Having nothing on which to create, the goddess, like a spider, must give rise to her canvas by producing it from her own being. So her body, her very nature itself, is the creative impulse the vibrational power of infinite creativity. And our work is to allow that impulse to move through us and to offer back to her, to honor this world through the carefully cultivated instrument of our being. The Sundari Lahari says, quote, This crimson gold-hued goddess shines like the rays of the rising sun in the minds of poets, stimulating their poetry forth. Their words surge like erotic waves emanating from the goddess of speech herself. Kavindranam 
Erotic waves, waves of longing as the scintillant force of creation moves through us as creative power. O oh, goddess of longing, cries the Malini Stava, you whose form is heated liquid gold. Longing, eros, comma, the force of desirous longing that splits the oneness into manyness, is her. And those waves of longing still pulsing from the moment of creation like sparks still hot from the explosive moment of differentiation itself pulse through us as our own longing to reunite with that oneness again. So her body is the body of all things that live separate from one another and long to be united again. Her body is the song of differentiation itself. And that song revels in the simultaneous separation and union we feel as beings that live in a universe we are part of and yet feel apart from. Can you feel that resonance, that vibrancy, that burning ember? I am part of this world. I feel separate from this world. I am part of this world. I feel separate from this world. All of that longing is her. Not just the resolution of it, not just the union, the separation too. She lives in all beings, says the Chandipada, in the form of longing. So her devotees are love-stricken poets, longing for that from which they feel maddeningly apart. The love-stricken poets long for her, search for her. This poet sighs deeply. Where is this brilliant lady, this black light beyond all luminosity, sings Ram Prasad. And then, I'll die of this mental anguish. My story is unbelievable. This son of the universal mother is dying of hunger pangs. You called me and called me. You took me on your lap. And then dashed my heart to the ground. And who of us hasn't felt this? I felt you, beloved nature, beloved universe. I felt you so close. I felt conjoined, I felt one with you. You took me to your lap, and then just like that, I feel separate again. Where did that feeling go? Do we walk around feeling one with everything all the time? No. And a little advice perhaps, don't trust anyone who says they feel one with everything all the time. That's not the reality of creatural being in linear time. We feel separate. And yet the separateness, too, is her. The cry of devotion, the how could you do this to me universe, the cry of, oh, terrifying mother, gentle mother, why is all this happening? Why is all this happening to the world? I never thought it would be like this. I never thought it would be like this. This, too, is her. This is her crying to her. Resonance, you feel it? Her crying to her. 
And this phase of the dance is important, far more important perhaps than an abstract presumed oneness that is not congruent with the actual pain of separation that all of us in our own ways feel. Reveling in the separation is the nature of most devotional music, from bhakti to blues to gospel. You know it, the cry of separation, the cry of take me into your arms, my long-lost love, the cry of the songbird to the monsoon. I am nothing without you. Burn me to cinders, cry the devotional poets, and rub the ash all over your body and then dance. I prefer that to, you know, five simple ways to make the goddess work for you. And you know what? I also prefer it to the whole ultimately I am one with everything all the time thing. So what? How does that help me navigate the actual waves? That makes it far too easy in the modern West for our focus to be turned once again only on ourselves. I am the universe. I am everything. It's all within me. Sure, but how am I in relation to the other, to her, to her, to this world of differentiated forces. I say I want a deeper relationship of reciprocity to nature. Can I maintain a relationship of specificity and depth with that which I am connected to but also separate from? The resonance that flows from songs of longing specifically comes from acknowledging this great force of nature and the animate forces around us as living entities with which we are in an I-you relationship, or an I-thou relationship, not just a me-me relationship. And before this degrades into intellectualized non-duality versus duality arguments, just see if you can feel this. I'm speaking of the qualitative difference between all this is me and all this all this, all this, beloved mother, all this is you, is you. You makes resonance possible. Resonance pranic flow exists between two. If you want to wake up the animate force, call to her, as you. You, aspen tree. You, hidden spring. You, river otter. You, hypericum flower. You. She is shy, bashful, coy, alluring. The universe is created in one story, from the flush and sway of her bashfulness. Her lover pursues her, she bends away. He returns inward, she rushes to embrace him. We feel, each of us, a pull towards the natural world, a pull towards union. That is the same eternal impulse that draws lovers to each other with quickened breath. She is this pull. She causes us to stir. A single arching of her eyebrow, they say, sends the impulses of universal creation firing, stirs the hearts of the staunchest celibate sages. From the Sundari Lahari, 
After the universe dissolves into void, a single movement from your vine-like eyebrows spurs creation into being again. For she is the daughter, the Kumarika Kandaha tells us, tasked with milking the universe. She coaxes the vibrational power, the longing out of its latency. Quote, you are the goddess that milks the nectar of potentiality from the singularity, and your universal body is flooded with its secretions. So she stirs the vibrational potential out of latency into the full glory of manifestation. She is the longing that causes it and the satiation of it. Wrapped in sensual pleasure, she revels in the majesty of her own creative power. She is eternally self-pleasuring, the one who melts the three worlds as she herself is melted. Her devotees, the Kumarika Kandaha says, experience the contentment of the night of the full moon that arises laden with nectar. The senses are drops of her great ocean. Her body is made of touch. Her animate body of stones, of statues, of trees, of conch shells, of pools, of flames, of fragrances, of powders, is adored through touch. She is the one whose limbs are smeared in sandal paste. That paste is applied with devotional abandon, slathered on her knees, her feet, her neck, her forehead. Every day she is washed, slathered, rubbed, smeared in powders, dribbled in butter and oil. She is offered to. Her body is made of loving offerings. If you want to know the goddess, if you want to know the animate power, offer her something. Offer her something. And this too is where modern psychological self-help visions of the goddess lose the plot a little bit. The alchemical furnace does not fire if we just show up one day, invoke her name a couple times, and then expect her to enhance our lives somehow. The alchemy comes through real, thorough, personal, intricate relationship in which we offer to her again and again. And what do we offer to her? Everything. Traditionally, offerings to her run the full spectrum of energetic density, from rich foods and thick lotus petals to milk, water, flame, to fine curling incense smoke, finer still a continent's worth of hymns and vocalizations. Songs, mantras, the blasts of conch shells, Shabda, the sacred offering of sound in honor of she who is the source of sound itself. Quote, From the cave hermitage of space-time, says the Kumarik Kandaha, she emerges silent and transports all sound, shining brilliant like pure crystal. Finer and finer still, shining like pure crystal. Light is offered to her, image, Imaginally constructed yantras, intricate geometries of light alive in the minds of practitioners who offer the creative power of consciousness itself, 
finely constructed spaces where the beautiful one of the three worlds sits in a pavilion of rubies in a lake of pure crystalline vibration. In the midst of the ocean of nectar, on an island of gems, as the Sundari Lahari says, that's her too, the rainbow light of spontaneous presence that dances about in the spacious crystal of consciousness, the shimmer, the gleam, finer and finer still, the light of pure consciousness itself, the dazzling play of the finer vibrations. She is free and is of the character of playing in the field of pure consciousness, says the Tripura Rahasya. She sports in the creative delight of her own consciousness, says the Paratrishika Vivarana, and the Kumarika Kandaha calls her the one who delights in spontaneous play. She lives in all beings, says the Chandipataha, in the form of awareness, in the form of reflection, in the form of intellect, in the form of memory. So her body is the luminous shimmering of all the visions of her, of all the visions of her, all the memories of her, all the dreams of her. What was our dream of her? In what luminosities, what bends and sways, what fierce waves did we feel her present, alive, awake? Who was she to us during these fleeting days? When this life comes to an end, will we wish that we sought her out more? Will we wish we'd turned our attention just a little bit more to the light on the water? Who was she to us? Was she a distant thought, a faraway dream, a neglected shrine growing with cobwebs? Or was she a shining axis that passed right through us, that washed our spines in rapture, that gave us anchor when this life seemed nothing but tears and failure? Was she distant and cold as a cynical dismissal, or theoretical as a heady philosophical treatise, or vague as a, oh yeah, I mean, I guess there's some kind of energy or life force in the universe or whatever? Or was she as intricate and fully formed as a yantra of interlocking luminous triangles? expressing an order as precise and perfect as the double helix of DNA. How often did we choose distraction over her? How often, beloveds, and trust me, I'm asking myself the same question, how often did we choose the screen over her? How did we feel her? In the fine movement of the breeze through the tamarind tree, the vital breath pulsing through our limbs as we danced the ritual steps, was it through the pain of pilgrimage, the cry of longing, the blues song, the wail, the great lament? Was it through the paintbrush stroke, the quick glance of the falcon, the brilliant rays on the autumn lake? 
the Chandipata says, she lives in all beings in the form of brilliance. In all beings in the form of brilliance. Do you remember her on that hike that one day? Perhaps after much effort and huffing and puffing, we reached the top of that one hill, our hearts thrumming in our chests, and we raised our gaze to the horizon, the mountains that day shining as the sun kindled them with evening's fire, and we felt part of something, or we felt the hum, the friction of both being a separate being and being inextricably linked to everything, to the entire universe, all at once. That was her. She is the eyes looking back on herself. Shining with rapture, the texts say. Flushed by the joy of her own self-beholding. Do you remember the light that day? Flushed in the joy of its own self-beholding. That was her. The clear light. The clear, clear light. It was her. The clear light. It was her. Mother, cries the Sundaria Lahari, the dust of your feet is an island of shelter where the luminous sunrise dawns. Were you there for that luminous sunrise, that flush of all things becoming, those incandescent rays? It was her, beloved. It was her. The power, the mother, the power. It was you, O oh power. It was you, divine mother of the universe. Special, special thanks today to Nivedita Guntari for providing this beautiful, beautiful singing throughout this episode, the wonderful devotional songs and bhajans that she sang for us. And I'd love to be able to point you to more of her music, but I can't because it's not available anywhere else. <laughs> and as always, this episode contains reference to many books, movies, etc., etc. These include The Force That Through the Green Fuse Drives the Flower, a poem by Dylan Thomas, the song Samaya by Trevor Hall, the Yogini Hardaya, there's a good version by Andre Padu called The Heart of the Yogini. The Devatma Shakti, The Chandipataha, Offering Flowers, Feeding Skulls by June McDaniel. The Skanda Purana, The Devi Mahatmya, The Sandarya Lahari. I know I'm giving our friend Sai, who puts all the titles together for our Goodreads group. I'm raising his blood pressure right now. The Ashtotara Shatanamavali of Goddess Lakshmi. The Sahasranamavali of Goddess Lakshmi. The Lalita Sahasranama. The Paratrishika Vivarana. The Self-Possessed by Frederick Smith. The Vicissitudes of the Goddess by Sri Padma. The Tantric Body by Gavin Flood. Kshema Raja's commentary on the Netra Tantra. And you can find that in the book The Yoga of the Netra Tantra by Bettina Balmer. The Tripura Rahasya, the Nitya Sodashi Karnava, there's a good version in Jeffrey Lidke's book, The Goddess Within and Beyond the Three Cities, the Naneshwari, Mother of the Universe, versions of Ram Prasad Sen by Lex Hickson, 
the Kumarika Kandaha, the section of the Mantana Bhairava Tantra concerning the Virgin Goddess, translated with commentary by Mark Diskowski, and the Malini Stava can be found deeply buried in there. Thanks to Christopher Wallace for his translation of the Tantric texts and to the work of Stanislaw Timalsina, who is a Tantric lineage holder, and you can find his work through the Vimarsha Foundation. That's vimarshafoundation.org. Vimarsha is V-I-M-A-R-S-H-A foundation.org. And, of course, the song Bless the Broken Road That Led Me Right to You by Rascal Flatts. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Mm-hmm.